we're going to start a new series today, and uh, it's called Ain't Nothing Gonna Steal My Joy. But first, I have a question for you. How many of you consider yourself a joyful person? Okay, good. Now, we're going to use our outside voices for this one, all right? I want you to very loudly and clearly name the, one, the person you think is the most joyful person in our church family. Go ahead. All right, four of you were involved in that. That was fantastic. Uh, thank you for doing it. For those of you who heard your name, isn't that an encouraging thing to hear? To know that people see you as a joyful person. To know that hopefully the joy of the Lord is so clearly evident in your life. If you are someone who you thought, well, I don't have to worry about hearing my name, might I recommend uh, you be a joyful person. Now we're going to do the other half of this. Who's the least joyful person? No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that, okay? <laughs> we're not going there this morning. We'd have to go back to communion. Uh, but as a person of joy, which if you're a believer, you should be a person of joy, you should be someone of which at least your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors know that's a joyful person. Why? Because you're of the Lord. And of anybody in this world, we have the most to be joyful about because we know we're going to heaven. We know where our eternity lies. We have that hope which should give us joy. But I don't know if you know these things, if you know what can steal your joy. I don't know about you, but for me, I know there's a few things in life which can rob me of my joy pretty quick. And I'm just going to tell you how petty I am, because one of the things that came to my mind when I was pondering this this week, I thought, what, what can steal my joy? I am not too shamed to tell you one of the first things that came to my mind is when somebody eats my leftovers. <laughs> now, it doesn't happen anymore, really, when, now that I'm married, but I used to live with a bunch of guys in, in a house in particular is where this really came to mind, and now to write my name on it, I put the date on it, I'd say, do not touch this, and it would still get eaten. And man, that would steal my joy pretty quick. And I'm just being honest, that's one of the first things that came to my mind. But for you, what are those things which can steal your joy? And I mean like legitimately take it away from you. I don't know if you're a news person. You turn the news on and goes your joy. You go to Facebook and there goes your joy. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, there goes your joy. Somebody does something to you and robs you of your joy. See, because I don't know about you, but I, I personally, I believe that we can't lose our salvation, so if somebody cuts me off in traffic or eats my leftovers, that can't take away my salvation. So why does my joy go so quickly? Now, I know some of you are better at this than me. I, I can, my, my wife knows, I can go from joyful to very unjoyful in a very brief moment, uh, and I can go back and forth pretty quickly. But we should be people of joy. As you can see, our, our new series title is Ain't Nothing Gonna Steal My Joy. And I can't think of somebody who embodies this grammatically horrendous statement like Paul. Paul is just somebody who ain't nothing going to steal his joy. As you read his writings in the New Testament, he's just a man who, in that, I, I just think of myself, in that circumstance, man, where are you finding this joy? What is there to celebrate? What is there to uh, sing songs about and worship and, and be happy about? Because if for your own sake, do a little study on Roman prisons sometimes around, uh, you know, 
30 AD and get an experience of what Paul, where he's coming from, because I don't think you really appreciate what Paul's saying until you fully understand where Paul is writing some of his writings from. Paul continually finds himself in awful circumstances, absolutely horrible circumstances, and it's always for the sake of the gospel. We don't have any record of Paul getting arrested for stealing something or um, doing something illegal that he actually, you know, had nothing to do with the gospel. It's always for the gospel's sake. He's always going out, and he's telling people about Jesus, and he's being very clear about his message, and he keeps getting arrested for it and getting put in prison. Um, and at one point in Paul's writings, uh, he even gives his resume for potential complaint. He gives all the reasons he has to complain, but doesn't use them to complain. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you want to read along with us in your own Bible this morning, I'm reading out of the New Living, so you can follow along with us, or you can just follow along on the screen. But we're going to start in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 28, is Paul's, what I'm calling his resume for complaining. It says, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Anybody here gotten 39 lashes? Okay, okay, so none of us have that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Anybody beaten with rods? Okay, I was. My mom liked those. Uh, once I was stoned, biblically, anybody been stoned? Okay. Nope. Three times I was shipwrecked. Anybody been shipwrecked? No. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. Anybody? No, no takers on that one either. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the seas. And have, I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, and during many sleepless nights I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Then, besides all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. This is Paul's resume for his suffering. He's saying, this is all the reasons, these are all the reasons I have to complain. And yet he has joy. For many of us, we don't have any of those things that we can say have, have the authority to steal our joy, and yet we find ourselves not people of joy. When I ask as a church, hey, who's the most joyful person you know, or who, name the top five most joyful people you know, people aren't going to say our name, because we tend to look at the negative side of things. We tend to complain about what we don't have instead of focusing on what we do have. Paul was a master at focusing on what he did have, or at least focusing on the bigger picture wherever he found himself in, whatever circumstances he was in. Instead of getting frustrated with the lack of ease that Paul has in his ministry, we find him often rejoicing and celebrating those very same awful circumstances. How often we find Paul and whoever he's with singing hymns and rejoicing as he's in prison. And man, I don't, I don't know about you, but if I was one of those Roman guards, I would have a lot of confusion because most people that are going to be found in prison are either going to be angry, they're going to be depressed, or some other emotion like that. And yet here's Paul singing songs, 
seems joyful and thinking like, man, what do we have to do to this guy to make him sad, to make him angry, to make him depressed? 2 Corinthians 12.10 says, That's why I take pleasure in my weakness, weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Man, to have a mentality where we say, wow, I'm finding myself in pretty horrible circumstances. What a great opportunity for God to be glorified. What a great opportunity for God's power to be made known through me right now in my terrible, horrible circumstances. Instead, very often, because many of us or many Christians serve a kind of vending machine Jesus, when we're in a bad circumstance, when things aren't going our way and we pray and God doesn't take it away, we say, well, what in the world, God? I'm faithful. I go to church. I prayed hard at least once about this, and you didn't take it away. What in the world? You're supposed to do that. You're supposed to love me enough to take away all my hardships. You're supposed to love me enough to take away anything that would make me sad and would, t- would steal my joy. It's your fault I don't have joy right now, God. If you would just show up, everything would be good. And instead, we find Paul saying, well, if this is where you want me, God, then I'm just going to worship you right here. I'll worship, wor- worship you wherever you take me. And I find myself in prison, well, let's worship then. And I love that about Paul. I think we've gotten confused at times that we can only be joyful when circumstances are going our way. As if joy is like a byproduct of things going well. Joy doesn't, and this is what I want you to get if you're a note taker, joy doesn't come from what happens to us. It comes from how we respond to our circumstances. That's what joy is. Joy doesn't come from what happens to us, but how we respond to our circumstances. That's where joy comes from. And if you're not a person of joy, this might be news to you. You might have been waiting for the right circumstances to come your way to make you joyful. You might have been waiting for your financial situation to get better to the point where now you can be joyful. You might be waiting until you uh, meet that Uh, boy or girl that you're going to get married to someday, and then you're going to be joyful, because then you'll have everything you wanted. How many of you got married and found out you had everything you ever wanted? Okay, so it doesn't work out very well, all right? We were happy. I'm still happy. I love my wife. I'm happy. But if I was waiting till I had everything I wanted to be joyful, I would not be a person of joy. See, I've seen miserable people in great circumstances, that have a lot more of whatever the things that I kind of want in this world than I have, and yet they're still miserable. And I've seen joyful people in absolutely horrible, tough circumstances. I've seen them in the valley and just saying, you know what, God is still good. And you can tell it's not just a cliche. It's, they're not just faking their way through it. They're truly happy or joyful in their circumstances, despite all the things that are going on in their life. See, joy is a choice. It's not an accidental byproduct of circumstances. And I think too often that's how we view it. That if, well, if I just had better circumstances, then I would just naturally be more joyful. I don't know the person that came to your mind, um, or if anybody came to your mind. If nobody came to your mind when I asked who the most joyful person was in this church, you need to get to more functions, okay? You need to hang out with church people more often. They're there. So if nobody came to your mind, you need to hang out with God's people more. But whoever did come to your mind, I'm going to bet they're not the person with the easiest life that you know. 
I bet if you, actually, if you actually know them well enough, you know, man, they've been through the ringer at times. Like, they've really been through it. Because true joy, boy, it really gets its test when we're in the valley. When you learn how to be joyful in the valley, it's a lot easier to be joyful at all times and to find that joy. Now, I don't know Paul's life. I don't know if the first time they threw him in prison, his immediate response was joy. I'm going to guess it wasn't judging by what we know of Paul. But maybe God did something while he was in prison there. Maybe God showed up. Maybe it wasn't even the first time he was in prison. Maybe it was the second, third, or fourth time he was in prison. He finally said, you know what? I have to be joyful. I don't know, I don't know what that looked like for him. But I don't think he, w- he had this joy that none of us has, have access to. Uh, I do think it was a supernatural joy, but I don't think it's beyond our grasp. I think it's a joy we can all share in if we seek God that way. So my first question, first personal reflection question this morning is, are you somebody who can state, ain't nothing going to steal my joy? Now, I don't ask that flippantly because the enemy will test you if you're willing to say something like that. If you're going to look the enemy in the face and say, ain't nothing going to steal my joy, that's a challenge to the enemy. And then we're going to have to really lean into the Holy Spirit if we're somebody that is willing to say that. Or are you somebody who is controlled by their circumstances? That based on your circumstances, that will determine how much joy or if you even have any joy. That once things start going your way, well, okay, then I can be joyful. Or when things aren't going your way, well, I guess this isn't a joyful day. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. Uh, Philippians is, I love the book of Philippians, and we're going to be doing a little study through that. Um, But if you read the whole letter, uh, throughout the whole letter, you'll see how circumstances do not dictate Paul's joy, because he doesn't find himself in very favorable circumstances to begin with. Time after time, Paul is given more than enough excuses to whine, complain, and judge other people, look down on others, and he chooses not to. The enemy never steals his joy. He never succeeds. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that Paul never had a moment where he thought, this is just not worth it? I'm going to bet he did have those moments. I'm going to bet he had moments where he thought about walking away, giving it all up, and not doing it anymore. Because having joy, doing what we're calling people to do, doesn't mean that we have it all day long, every single moment of the day. And so you might be someone who say, yeah, I'm pretty joyful, but man, that one thing, that really gets me every time that happens. That doesn't mean that you're a failure. It means this is a good place to work on that. This is something God maybe wants to work on in your life. Being a person of joy doesn't mean we never fail or we never lose our temper or we never have a bad day. That's the kind of Christianity, that's, that's that fake stuff that the church, in my opinion, has kind of propagated over time is to say, well, you have to have it all the time. Everything's got to be good all the time. And that makes you a good Christian. You're not allowed to have a bad day. And you are allowed to have a bad day. It's okay not to be okay. But it's not okay to stay that way. And so we should be people of joy. So this morning, I want to open up Philippians for us this morning. We're not going to get very far. Uh, we're just going to cover the, oh, uh, the, the greeting, the intro to Philippians this morning. We just don't have enough time to cover it all. Because uh, I really want to uh, look specifically at something we find in Paul's greeting in the book of Philippians. But before we start reading a book, uh, 
what we always want to do is look at some of the overall characteristics of the book. So anytime we're going to do a book study like this, there's a couple things we want to look at before we start reading. I want you to look at it in light of this. So uh, first, the author is important. Paul is the author. It's kind of, this isn't one of the books that's disputed at all. Paul is believed to be the author of this book uh, without question. The date of when it was written um, is... Well, first off, it's referred to as one of the prison epistles, which means this was written from prison. Um, Paul wasn't writing this from, you know, a nice cushy house where everything was good. He's writing it from prison. There's a number of the epistles that are definitely written from prison. Uh, And it's thought to be written during a two-year imprisonment in Rome. I don't know about you, but sometimes people think that Paul's uh, imprisonments were kind of like a week or two weeks or like a month or a couple days This is just one of the two-year-long imprisonment that he had. And it's believed that Paul wrote this a little bit earlier into his imprisonment, not more toward the end. Um, So this is a two-year-long stint that Paul is doing in prison without cause. Paul hasn't broken the law. He hasn't done something worthy of being imprisoned. And yet he's being treated in this way. Possibly chained either to the wall or to another person. Um, Often... uh, um, maybe later in Paul's imprisonments, they actually would start chaining him to people because he just found a way to get out all the time because the Holy Spirit would let him out. Um, but it's not a pretty place that he finds himself. And then the purpose. Why did Paul write this letter? It's important to know why a, a book is written because um, it helps you understand the mindset of Paul. Um, the reason, one of the biggest reasons why Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church um, is because he's sending back a guy named Epaphroditus Um, and Epaphroditus is actually from Philippi, so this is kind of like his home church, and Epaphroditus had come to Paul to minister to him, to bring him some things, to make his imprisonment a little easier on him, Um, and so Paul's writing these letters to the believers in Philippi um, to let him know, hey, this guy Epaphroditus, he was awesome. Just thank you for sending him. He's a great guy, and it's kind of like an encouragement letter back to the the people of Philippi, and he, uh, he takes the opportunity also to encourage them in their faith as well. And he's also encouraging them to joy. There's an overwhelming theme of joy in the book of Philippians. Just in the four chapters you find in Philippians, uh, joy is found 16 times. Paul's talking about joy in the book of Philippians, which, again, in light of his circumstances, to me seems kind of interesting. He's found himself in prison yet again in a disgusting, dirty prison because they didn't have like those nice toilets that they have in prisons now. It's just you just went wherever you were and kind of hope that you were on the top floor of the prison, because if you were on the bottom, everything flows down. Um, and likely Paul wasn't on the top floor, because he wasn't a very important uh, prisoner. So that's the situation he finds himself in. And yet, 16 times in one letter, we find him talking about joy, about being joyful. And not just talking about his own joy, but encouraging the Philippians to be people of joy. So I just want to open it up uh, quick. Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this is as far as we're going to get this morning. I'm just setting expectations here. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. So this was the traditional greeting that somebody writing a letter would give when they were writing something. Um, it's a very traditional greeting for Paul in particular, but also for any letters of that time. 
And you might think of the way, because of the way it's worded here, um, that Timothy actually was part of writing this book. He actually wasn't. This was the way uh, that Paul was acknowledging just how important, significant Timothy was to him personally and to his ministry. Um, he was showing how much he respected Timothy by putting his name alongside his in that greeting, saying the letter comes from him and Timothy, saying this guy is such an amazing co-worker that my work isn't possible without him. So essentially the letter's coming from both of us because without Timothy I wouldn't even be able to write this. So um, you know, because later on Paul talks about Timothy pretty often, or not pretty often, but he does talk about him. He considers him such an amazing person. You also see, uh, depending on your translation, this mentions uh, Paul says that he and Timothy are slaves of Christ Jesus, slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, do you think this is the same manner of slavery that we know of today? I'm going to argue that it is. The exact same kind of slavery that you know of and think of today. Now, a couple reasons why I would say that. First off, they were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. So first off, they acknowledge they're bought with a price. These are people who have been bought for a price, a very high price Christ paid with Celebrate communion this morning. It was a very high price for him. Paul saw himself as owned by Christ. He said, you're not your own. You do not have possession of yourself. You belong to somebody else. And so very much like modern day slavery, they're owned by somebody else. He was not free to do as he pleased. Paul didn't view his life that way, but only as his master willed. That was the only thing he could do. He felt himself completely subject to his master's will. He didn't have the freedom to decide what to obey from his master. He didn't feel that freedom at all. He obeyed implicitly what he was told. He felt compelled to obey because he saw Christ as his master and him as his slave. His life was no longer his own and no longer to be lived for himself. He didn't have that option of, well, I can go and serve Christ here, and then I can live my life over here. He didn't view it that way. He was one life, and it was lived for Christ. That was it. He, didn't have, he no longer had a personal life as we view it. So in many ways, I would argue, yes, this is exactly like slavery as we know it. Um, there are different portions of the, uh, of the Bible when it mentions slavery that I think it's talking not about slavery as we know it today, but I think this, Paul viewed himself in very much the same way that we would view slavery today. One main difference is that Christ is the perfect and loving master. Christ never wields his authority over us in an unjust way, in a way that is abusive or mean or hurtful or hateful. Christ never even punishes those on this earth uh, because they're, they've been disobedient. He doesn't bring wrath upon us. You know, you might think that that flat tire you got was because you did something wrong or you had some sin in your life, but that's just simply not what the Bible tells us. Um, he doesn't punish us every time we're disobedient. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we don't experience the consequences of our sin and the consequences of our bad decisions. He doesn't always remove the consequences, but he's not standing over us ready to, to hurt us and, and uh, beat us because we are disobedient. He even lets us walk away and turn our back on him without immediate repercussion. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we don't still suffer the consequences of walking away from him, but there's not an immediate physical retribution for us walking away from him. He always pursues us with love and acceptance. That's the way God pursues us and deals with us. And I think that we do a disservice, we do Christ a disservice, when we view our relationship with God more as that employer-employee relationship. We see, and I think that's where we get a little confused, because obviously slavery is a hot topic. It's something um, most people would say I probably shouldn't even talk about, because we, you know, that's just such a taboo topic. But I think we have to be honest about the way Paul saw himself in relationship to God. And there's no way to look at that without being honest that it is more like modern-day slavery than an employee-employer relationship. Many of us, we want to view ourselves in that employee-employer relationship, that we're just an employee of Jesus Christ. We want to still think that we're totally autonomous, that we still have every choice, because as an employee of a company, you always have the option to just say, you know what, I quit, and walk out and leave. You always have that option as an employee. As a slave, quitting isn't on the table. You don't just get to say, well, you know what? I don't like this anymore. I'm out. That's not an option. You've been bought with a price. You are owned by that person. As wrong as that is on this earth, our relationship with Christ is viewed that way. Many of us were too prideful to see ourselves as owned by anyone. I'm not owned by Jesus. And we, we might even take offense to that this morning to think that we're owned by somebody like Christ. Even Jesus, we might get offended to think ourselves owned by him. We want the freedom to say no and to do our own thing, to feel like, well, I, God gave us a free will, and so I can still say no to him anytime I want. And while that's true, it's not right. And a slave could say no to their master at any point, most of the time, there's probably going to be some physical repercussions for that. But just because they can say no doesn't make it a right thing to do. We don't want anyone telling us where to go, what to do, or how to do it. So many Christians, view, we still view ourselves as like, well, you know what? I'm going to include Jesus in what I'm doing, but I'm still in charge. My life, my family, my spouse, my kids my income, my bank account, my car, my house, my everything. And I'll invite Jesus in at times. Just the same way that for many of you, uh, I think uh, at times the, the goal is to be able to leave work at home or leave work at work, right? You don't want to bring work home. That's part of what we do. And unfortunately for some of us, we view our Christianity that way too. As an employee of Jesus, I leave work at work. When I come home, it's my time. If I want to sit and veg, if I want to do whatever I want to do at home, if I want to look at things I want to look at, if I want to watch movies or TV that I want to watch, that's totally outside of his jurisdiction. Just the same way that your boss couldn't tell you what TV you can watch or what shows are okay, or if you're allowed to, to have Netflix or Hulu or, or Dish Network, you know, your, your employer has no say on that. We kind of view Jesus the same way. 
you know, keep, keep your authority where it belongs. I'm not at work right now. I'm at home. This is my space. We don't like people telling us where to go, what to do, or how to do it. And does that sound familiar to you? Is there any group of people in all of history that seem very similar to that? If not, you might want to read your Old Testament a little bit. Because God's chosen people dealt with this problem so often. And how well did it work out for them? They continually went downward, this downward spiral. And then they would finally realize, this isn't the life I should, we should be living. We should, we should love God with all our hearts. And God says, okay, I forgive you. And they say, ah, now that things are good, we're going to do our own thing again. And then a generation or two later, okay, we made a mistake. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us have lived that downward spiral life. God gives us what we want. We get real happy for some time. And we get really lazy and lax in our Christianity. And we walk away from Him. And then crisis hits. And then it's, oh God, I love you again. And you're the God of my life. And will you just save me, rescue me from my crisis? And God does. He shows up. We say, oh, fantastic. And things are good again. And we walk away from Him again. We are on the same downward spiral. Why? Because we don't want him telling us what to do. Once things are good, we say, okay, employer, back into your box. Keep your business over here, and the rest of my life is over here. We want the love and the blessings of Christ, but not as a slave of Christ. We want them as an employee of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I, especially when I was working in... Uh, not in a church. One of the big things for me was the, uh, now I lost the word. Benefits. That's what I was looking for. And I know a lot of you, when you are looking for a job, benefits are a big deal. <laughs> More so than salary sometimes. Benefits can be huge. And so I, I know some couples who, I know when Jackie and I lived in Morgantown, she worked at the hospital, and I was like, I don't even care what they're paying you, we had like health benefits and we, the whole thing was basically covered. We had great health benefits through the, through the hospital. I was like, hey, the benefits are worth whatever, you know, salary you're getting there because alone they're going to be fantastic because we, we're going to have a kid and we, you know, we knew all this stuff was coming and it was like, this is totally worth it. And we didn't pay a penny for having Killian in, in the hospital. So it was fantastic. And some of us kind of viewed Jesus that way. We're like, well, I want all the benefits, but I want to leave work at work. I want to leave Christianity at the church. When I leave those doors Sunday afternoon and go home, I'm back to my life. I just, well, I still want the benefits of that, that relationship, and I still want the benefits from my employer, but I don't want to view myself as owned by him. If we saw ourselves as legitimate slaves of Christ, it would change everything about how we lived our lives. Everything would change. We would no longer be claiming our rights. We would no longer be so uh, caught up in what is ours and me and mine. And, and we wouldn't be thinking, well, man, I've given the church a lot lately. I'm just going to take a break and, and just, you know, I'm going to push the church to the back burner. I'm going to push, push God to the back burner and just forget about him for a while because, man, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worn out a little bit. Or what some people deal with is, well, I'm older in life now. And I served God for a good 30, 40 years. Now I'm just going to take a break. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to be ministered to. I'm not going to pour anything out anymore. I'm done. I've served my time. I'm retired from God's work. I believe this is one of the reasons that Paul is able to remain joyful in his trials. 
He doesn't complain about where his master takes him. As a slave of Christ, he's subject to the will of his master. And he's totally okay with that. He is rested. He actually finds security in that. And if you know anything about Old Testament or that era slavery, very often there still was the slavery where you were bought and sold. But there's also voluntary slavery where you would volunteer yourself to somebody. And that did look a little bit more like the employee-employer relationship. Um, You were still their slave until the set time that you had designated. But uh, people took comfort in that, saying, you know what, I don't, have to, I don't want to have to worry about my own vineyards, my own, all this other stuff. I'd rather just work for somebody else and basically get a paycheck, is, is what that view of slavery was. And Paul's very clear. It's not, that, it's not the kind of slavery I'm talking about here. This is the bought and sold kind of slavery. I'm his, totally his. No options, no way out, no clause that'll get me out of this. I'm bought by Jesus. It was a high price that he paid. I am his, and I must be subject to his will. Paul's expectations are that of a slave, not an employee. I've been an employee of an organization, and I'll be honest, I expected certain things from them. I expected them to treat me a certain way. I expected them um, to do certain things to show their appreciation for me. I expected them to, uh, you know, follow certain rules, and I expected them to leave me alone when it was my time off. I, I don't know if any of you deal with this. I hate being called on my day off. And any of you, how many of you loved those meetings that they'll schedule on your day off? Anybody love that? Because I didn't. I was not a big fan of that. And sometimes we kind of view ourselves that way with Jesus and saying, well, hey, this is my day off. My day off, God. Now, I I can't go to that event. That's my day off, man. I'm not doing church stuff that day. I'm I'm not doing Jesus that day. I'm doing me that day. I'm gonna do my thing. It's about me today. An employee wants to put in the time they feel like they've agreed to without the commitment. I've worked for a company where I felt absolutely no commitment to them as a company. I put in my time. I did my work with excellence. That's one of my things. I felt like I always had to do my work with excellence, but I couldn't have cared less if that company succeeded or failed. Really couldn't. Didn't matter to me. I would have just got another job. No big deal. I had absolutely no commitment into that that, that company A slave, however, is compelled to fulfill the master's wishes and is personally invested in the success or failure of their master. And that's what Christ calls us to be. Paul acknowledges that if his imprisonment helps further the cause of his master, then by all means, throw me in prison. You want me, oh, I need to get beat for my master? All right, sure, whatever you need, Jesus. Shipwrecked? All right, I'm good with that stoned to death, I'm good with that, Jesus, whatever you want. And at one point, we'll see in Philippians, he said, he legitimately wrestles with whether or not to be alive or dead. And it's not because he's depressed, it's because his joy is at such a level that he legitimately doesn't know which would be better. He says, well, to live is Christ. If I I live, that's for for Jesus, because man, this is hard. I don't like sitting in prison. I don't like being beaten with rods. I don't like being shipwrecked. I don't like constantly being in, in, in peril and, and, and risk of death. And he says, but because to die, man, that would be gain. He knows that'd be an upgrade. No more prison time, no more beaten with rods, no more shipwrecked, 
No more being chased by his own people and other people. And he legitimately struggles with whether which one's better for him. Man, to live a life like that, where our joy was, is so rested in Jesus that at any moment we're like, you know what, live or die. They're both good. To see our life as a service to God, acknowledging I'd rather die and not in like a mentally unstable and unhealthy way. I don't think this is Paul being mentally unhealthy. I think it's him saying, if I died, woohoo, I'm going to heaven. But I'm willing to live for Jesus. And he sees it as service every moment of every day. He sees it, you know what, this is for you, God. Not for me. I'm not living this life for my pleasure, for my gain, to build my kingdom. Man, I, I don't like this. <laughs> and he yet feels completely subject to his master's will because he knows if he's going to live, he has to live for Jesus. There's no choice there. So he'd rather die and be with him instead of serving him in torment and pain and agony. Paul acknowledges that whatever God calls him to, he should enter into it with as much joy and acceptance as he would the blessings of his master. Because whether his master wants to bless him or put him through a trial, it's all from him, and he's willing to do it, whatever it takes. As we'll discover in our study through Philippians, Paul's joy in his service to his master is unshakable. Nothing is going to steal his joy. If there's anybody that I look at in the Bible and say, this person embodies that, ain't nothing going to steal my joy, phrase, it's Paul. Because he is in some of the worst circumstances of people. Joseph maybe is a, is a pretty close second. But honestly, Egypt's prisons were a lot better than, than Romans. You might have noticed the atrocious grammar in our series title. And if you know me, I can be a little bit of a grammar Nazi. So... It hurt me to type this in, but it actually comes from a song by Zach Williams called Old Church Choir. I don't know if you've heard the song or not, but this is kind of my theme song for this series. Um, as I was praying and wrestling through what the next series was going to be and asking God, where, where do you want us to go as a church? Uh, you'll notice many times God speaks to me through worship. It's one of the sacred pathways that we talked about. Um, I love worship, and as, I'm, as I heard this song, I've heard it before, I felt the Holy Spirit say, this is it. And I thought, well, this is kind of a strange song because uh, I don't actually listen to words very much. So uh, I just hear music and that's it. I don't really know the words and stuff. So as I started listening to the words, I thought, wow, this is really awesome, God, because Philippians, and I didn't think of Philippians this way before the song. I thought, it really is all about joy. It's all about Paul's joy and how nothing's going to steal his joy. And that verse about, you know, whether I, you know, die or whether I live uh, came to my mind. I thought, man, this is exactly what this song is talking about. Because in my mind, the old church choir is just about like a church choir playing in your heart. Um, and it's not. It's about having a foundation based on our time together as a church family. He's singing about this, man, I've got a foundation that nothing can shake. Because of the foundation I have through the church that, I don't know what church he attended or anything like that, Zach Williams is saying, I have a foundation here. And it's because of some of the old stuff that was instilled in me. That's why the enemy can't steal my joy. Because I have a foundation in Christ. 
And if you know this year, I believe, is all about foundation for us as a church. God wants us to go deeper, to build a stronger foundation, all, both individually and as a church, that we would have a stronger foundation together, but especially personally, that our roots would go, grow deep into Jesus and our foundation would be built strong. And if you don't have a foundation where you can say, ain't nothing going to steal my joy, if it's very easy for the enemy to steal your joy, then it's, some, it's time for some foundation work. It's time to get into the Word of God, to get reading the Word of God, to get worshiping, with, uh, worshiping God, to be in fellowship with other believers who will challenge you and help you build that foundation so that you can sing, ain't nothing going to steal my joy. We're going to play this song in just a moment. And as we play it, I want you to sit, stand, come to the altar, where, whatever's appropriate for you. And I want you to be able to commit to God that you're going to be a person who there is nothing that exists on this earth that can steal your joy. And maybe you've failed miserably at this recently. I know 2020 and 2021 have been a year and more than a year now where maybe your joy has been robbed. The enemy's been stealing your joy. Every time you turn on the news, your joy is robbed. People send you messages or videos or what this, that, or the other thing, and it robs your joy whether it's, you know, whatever side of the fence you find yourself on this whole debate about everything, your joy has just been robbed. And maybe it's time for you to commit, you know what? There's nothing going to steal my joy anymore. I'm going to be a person of joy. I want to be someone who my coworkers, who my neighbor, who my family, who my church family thinks of as somebody who has great joy. Because there is nobody outside of the family of God who has a better reason to be joyful than us. We should be people of joy. They should know that we are people of joy because we've been redeemed. And there's nothing greater to celebrate in this world than that we have been redeemed. If you're watching at home, I encourage you to either Google or YouTube or something. Uh, the song, it's, again, it's Old Church Choir by Zach Williams. But for those of you here, I just want you to, like I said, stand, sit, come to the altar, whatever it takes for you to commit as we journey through Philippians, that you're going to both learn how to and do the work of being a person who can say, ain't nothing going to steal my joy. If you guys can play that song back there, I'd appreciate it. The words will be up here if you don't know the words to the song.
Amen. Now, y'all get a pass this week, but next week, we're going to clap, and we're going to sing, and we're going to celebrate this song, all right? Because as you know, maybe you know, one of the words God spoke over me this year is celebrate. And he, he reminded me, he opened my eyes to the reality that we as a church, we forgot how to celebrate. We don't have any clue how to celebrate who God is. Because if I was up here to say to you, hey, I just want to let you know my brother got saved, what would we do? Yay. And it'd be over. That's the moment. Man, look at the Old Testament. Look at the ways that God, how many festivals and celebrations he had for his people. Look at the book of Psalms. Those are songs that people would dance to, and they would shout at the top of their lungs to God as they walked their way toward Jerusalem, as they journeyed toward, they would, as a people, they would sing them, and they would celebrate them, and they would clap together, and they would play music together, and they would celebrate. And so many of us, we're just comfortable sitting in a pew and maybe, maybe clapping at the end of something. We just forgot how to celebrate God and who He is. And maybe that's why your joy is locked up. Maybe that's why you're not able to express because, man, if the Steelers are down by a couple points and they're on five and, you know, on the goal line, that's when you'll get amped up and you'll get, you know, you'll get loud and you'll get celebrating. And when they score that touchdown, you'll clap like nobody else and you'll jump up and down, but not for Jesus. Man, he doesn't deserve that kind of worship. We keep that in a living room. And God wants that. He wants you to celebrate him. So my challenge for you this week is to celebrate him. Whatever that looks like for you, you, know, you might not be a jumper and a clapper like I am, uh, but, and I, 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 I tried to sit down today to kind of give you a pass on that, uh, but next week, man, we're going to get into it, and we're going to play the song after every sermon this series, and I want you to learn how to celebrate, because there should be nothing that can steal your joy, and people should know about it. You shouldn't have to tell them you're a person of joy. They should feel it. They should see it. They should know it because we have been redeemed. We got a sweet salvation. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have given us so much to be joyful about. I thank you that we, there is no end to the amount of celebration we could give to you, because you are so good. And I acknowledge it won't look the same for each of us. Not everyone here is a yeller or a clapper or, or a dancer. But man, it wouldn't hurt to try. Our joy has been locked up so much. The enemy has convinced us that certain things just don't belong in the church. Yet David dances before the, the holy of holies, the altar itself, as he walks behind it. He's so happy of what you're doing that his wife ridicules him. And he says, I'll be even more undignified than this. It doesn't matter about me. All he's concerned with is celebrating his awesome God. He's not concerned with how foolish he looks. And for many of us, God, let us just admit to you we don't clap, we don't dance, and we don't shout in church because we're worried about what we'll look like. It's more about us than it is about you. Would you forgive us for that? And Lord, I pray over our people today that you would give them, you would release in them the heart of worship, the heart of celebration, that at some point this week they'd get excited and their voice would rise just a little, maybe a lot, as they get excited about who you are and what you're doing in their life. And God, I pray we as a church, we as a people, would be able to say there ain't nothing the enemy can throw at me that is going to steal my joy. Because I will celebrate, I will worship, and I will adore my King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.